this morning. If my voice cracks and squeaks a few times throughout the sermon, it's because I think I'm coming down with a cold. So I'm hoping I can get through this service and the second service, but just give you a fair warning there. It's not because I'm getting emotional. It's because, well, maybe, who knows? That happens every now and then. Um, Let me pray again, and then we will get into the message this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the chance that we have to gather together as your people. Lord, you are present because you reside in us. Your word teaches us that our bodies are the temple of the living God. And so as we gather together, there's an incredible amount of power to experience through the Holy Spirit living within us. And so I pray that we would experience you this morning. Pray that each person would taste and see that the Lord is good as we experience your grace, as we experience your power, as we experience your mercies, which are new every morning. Lord, I know that all of us gathered together in this room this morning come from different walks of life, different backgrounds, different baggage, different experiences this past week. Some of us are on the mountaintop, some of us are in the valley, and some of us are somewhere in between. I pray that you would meet each of us where we're at this morning and lead us to where you desire us to be in your presence, where there is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. In Jesus' name, amen. I want you to think of a few of the most spiritually significant moments in your life. Take just a second where you are and think about a few of the most spiritually significant moments in your life. You don't have to stare at me as you do it either. You can look down or look up or look to the side. Close your eyes if you need to. My guess is that as you think about the, a few of the most spiritually significant moments in your life, you recall certain people and particular places. Certain people and particular places come to mind as you think about some of the most spiritually significant moments in your life. For me, there's this picture. These pictures communicate a few of the most significant spiritual moments in my life. This church here was called New Commandment Church. It's in northeast Minneapolis. I took that picture just a couple weeks ago. There's still a little bit of snow on the ground. Praise the Lord, that snow is gone now. But I drove by that not too long ago, and the building is still there. I grew up in that church, and the little storefront next to it, that's the Chapel of Hope. That was downtown Minneapolis, no longer exists. It was a homeless ministry that my dad and mom ran, and then this church is a church that we were involved in for my early years. And those places and these people, John and Sheila Olson and my dad and Rita and Louise and my mom would be in that picture, but she was never in pictures because she was always the one taking the picture. And all of those kids that we did ministry among those are people and places that have deeply impacted me. In fact, that church building, I think, is a big reason why when Brittany and I moved to St. Louis Park, I prayed and asked that just, just kind of a, a prayer of, God, if, if you would bless me with something that I think would be cool, I would love to pastor in an old brick building with stained glass windows. And we planted a new church in St. Louis Park, and we started worshiping here Sunday evenings, and then we moved out to a different facility, a dance studio, which rather than stained glass windows, it had mirrors all the way around where we worshiped. So it looked like we were triple the size. It was great. Um, but then we moved back here as we merged with this church, and God had placed in my heart this desire to pastor in an old historic church, a brick church with stained glass windows. And I think that's because I was shaped in that building in northeast Minneapolis, which is about two blocks from where you work, Brooke, if you're in here this morning. And it's about two blocks from Antioch Community Church, the church that sent us out to church plant here. 
So those are a few of my people in places. Here's some more. The Grand Marais Evangelical Free Church and the people above that picture are some of the significant people in that church who impacted me. And yes, I am the small-looking boy there that's not so happy to be there with the ugly turtleneck. (laughs) And that church building and the people who made up that church significantly impacted my life. And then if you move over to the side here, also nature. That's called the Big Secret Lake. That's not actually its name. That's what my family refers to it, because if you find that lake, you will walk out with that many walleye on Stringer. And so we can't tell you the name of the lake because that's a secret place. That's one of the places that has shaped me. And some of the men that have shaped me as we would go into that lake, as we would portage through the boundary waters and get into that lake, my dad and Larry and Glenn, a few of the significant places and people that have shaped me. Here's two more. Up on the top left, that's Green Lake Bible Camp. I lived there as I was studying to be an electrician in Wilmer, Minnesota. And as I, as I lived there and as I was studying to be an electrician, God radically worked in my life and called me into ministry. And, and I followed that call. And from there, I went to Crown College, which is on the bottom right. That's Crown College, and I was shaped there, in fact. And I met my wife, Brittany, there. In fact, a little secret, our first kiss was on that roof right behind that cross. We snuck onto the roof, I asked her to date me, and then I kissed her. <laughs> Sorry, Brittany, she, she doesn't like me to tell people her stuff, but it's too bad. So places are significant. Had people not invested in Crown College and Green Lake Bible Camp and New Commandment Church and the Chapel of Hope, People invested their time, their energy, their money. I don't know where I would be today. I was significantly shaped by those people. I'm testimony of the fact that people and place shape us. You're certainly testimony of the fact that people and place shape you. If these walls, if the walls of this church building could speak, they would give you so much testimony of how people and this place have impacted people over the years. In fact, it was the mid-1940s that three men from the Evangelical Free Church were driving through St. Louis Park. This was a new growing community, and they stopped here in this location. This was a field, and they knelt right here and prayed, and they felt the sense of calling from the Lord that this is where we should build a church, and they knew that the church was a people, not a place, but they felt like as they gathered people together in this new growing village of St. Louis Park that that this would be a strategic location, a good place to build a church building that the people of the church could gather. And over the years, God has done amazing things through the people of this church and this place. We're actually the geographic center of St. Louis Park. Did you know that? Isn't that amazing to think that it, it seems like in the 1940s, God put on these men's heart to build a church building in the center of St. Louis Park. They didn't know it was the geographic center of St. Louis Park at the time. But they felt like God was saying, here's a great place to build this building. And as the city developed and grew, this, they found out this is the geographic center of St. Louis Park. Could that be because God wanted the message of Jesus Christ to stay central to our city? So over the years, the church grew and developed and went through ups and downs, but continued to make disciples of Jesus Christ. This is a plaque that we got from the old mayor of St. Louis Park, Gail Dorfman. This plaque was given to our church in 1996 on our 50th anniversary. Here's what Gail Dorfman, the mayor of St. Louis Park, at that time wrote about our church body. It says, Proclamation. 
Whereas St. Louis Park Evangelical Free Church is celebrating its 50th anniversary, whereas this church has served its members and their families faithfully by providing spiritual guidance and fellowship, whereas Evangelical Free Church has served the greater St. Louis Park community by committing its spiritual and material resources to those in need, and whereas the members of this church have further advanced St. Louis Park's sense of community by providing and participating in community-based programs. Now, now, therefore, let it be known that the mayor and city of St. Louis Park greatly appreciate the contributions of this congregation and wish to join in celebrating the 50th anniversary of St. Louis Park Evangelical Free Church. That was... Amen. Stephen grew up in that. Dave Elfers grew up in that. Um, Others of you have grown up in that, but you don't like to be called out in public, so I won't do that to you. This place has been significant. The people of this church family and this facility has been significant in making disciples over the years. Both people and places are a dynamic piece of ministry. However, the places piece of this idea is rather new to me because for a long time, and still I wrestle with this, I believe both people and places matter to the kingdom of God, but this place idea is newer in my own development and journey because I believe that the church is a people, not a place. This is what we see biblically. These biblical metaphors push us to believe that the church is a people, not a place. It's a family, not a facility. It's a body, not a building, a community, not a compound. I could go on and on. I could come up with like 100 of these. It's empowered by the spirit, not built upon a structure. It's built by faith, not on a solid foundation of concrete. We could go on and on and on. The church is a family, not a facility. This is biblically true. This is the biblical metaphor that the New Testament pushes us to believe, that, it, that the church is a people. It's not a place. However, I think we can take that metaphor too far, and I have done that for most of my ministry, which is still pretty short. But most of my ministry, I have, I have loved these phrases, and I have pushed this biblical metaphor to the point of neglecting building. And so recently, I've had to wrestle with my understanding of facilities and church buildings and places. Because as a young pastor who planted a mobile church in St. Louis Park, God gifted us with this place. God gifted us with this building which the generations before us have invested in and cared for and they've seen God do incredibly mighty things through his people in this particular place. And so as we as a church consider building renovations, I've had to wrestle with what is my own thought on buildings? How are buildings to be used for the kingdom of God? And so this morning, I, I feel like God was calling me to just pause on the book of Matthew for one Sunday. We'll be back in our normal sermon series on the book of Matthew next Sunday. But I feel like God wanted me to pause and to just engage this idea of building. We want to seek God's leading regarding our building. And so I want to have a discussion, a biblical discussion about place. What is the significance of place? We know that the church is primarily people, not place. But if God has placed us here in St. Louis Park, in this facility, what is our role as stewards of this place, of this facility? How should we think about our church building and our church facility? Now, I want to, you to hear me clearly as we move into this morning. We, that's myself and the elders and the leadership here, we're not trying to sell you on our plan. 
we're trying to include you in seeking God's plan for our church people in this specific place, for our family in this facility. And so many of you know we're kind of going through this discussion about whether or not we should do some building renovations. There's information out in the lobby by the history wall. As you leave this morning, grab information, grab a mug. It says 610 on it. 610 means Matthew 610, which tells us to, to pray and to seek God's kingdom, that his kingdom would come, his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So we want to invite all of you to join us for the next month, praying at 610 a.m. or p.m. or both, and using that mug and praying that God's kingdom would come, his will be done in St. Louis Park, in Park Community Church as it is in heaven. And I genuinely mean this. When I, when I give this message this morning, as I'm leading this church family through where, where we sense God leading us, we are not trying to sell you on a plan to renovate. We want you to be aware of the conversations that the leadership is having and where we believe that God is leading us so that you can engage God in seeking his plan for this place. He's done an amazing work in this people. And over the last three and a half years, God has brought so much revival and revitalization and renovation to the church body. And we're trying to engage him and figure out what does it look like for him to do that with our church facility and how can we as wide wise stewards care for our church facility. And so it's become apparent to me that as we press into this, that if we're going to hear God clearly regarding our building, we just need to think biblically about buildings in general. If we're going to gather as a church family in a church facility, we need to think biblically about both people and place. My, my bend is to think about people, think about people, think about people, I always think about people and push that metaphor that the church is a people, not a place. It's a body, not a building. It's a family, not a facility. It's a community, not a compound. But if we're going to gather as a church family in a church facility, we ought to have some type of theology for how we think about buildings, how we think about stuff, how we think about the things that God has given us to steward. And so I've been wrestling through this, and I think we as a church need to continue to wrestle through this. I highly encourage and recommend this book to you. It's called No Home Like Place, written by Len, I can't pronounce his last name, but he does live in Thunder Bay, Canada, which is close to my hometown of Grand Marais. So get this book, read it. And he, he kind of does this paradigm shift for me where, where he says that we need to really strategically and theologically consider our place as Christians. He says, typically in America, and he's Canadian, but he's, he's talking about American culture. In North America, they have some similar culture. He says, in America, we have careers, not places. In Christianity, we have callings, not places. Saying that typically our, our culture, like we will leave our place, we will leave our home, we will leave our people to follow our career. And even in Christianity, this is why pastors very infrequently stay for a long period of time at a particular place because, because they have callings or, or missionaries have callings and, and some people are called to go. Absolutely. We see that throughout the scriptures that God calls Abraham, our father, to pack up and go, to leave his land. That He calls Paul in the New Testament to be a missionary without a home. That Jesus himself didn't have a home to lay down his head. He was an itinerant preacher and miracle worker. But oftentimes in the American cultural Christianity, we, we tend to elevate career over place. 
and we tend to elevate calling over place. I'm called to a certain thing. I'm not called to a particular place. That's generally how we think about calling in Christianity. And Len in this book writes about his own journey of being called to other places and never having a home. And then he says, as he began to probe scripture, he began to realize that taking corners of creation and coming to know them, love them, and make them home is part of the gospel. That God actually wants to redeem our neighborhoods and renew our neighborhoods. And, and he wants people, yes, he sends people out as missionaries around the world, but he's also called a significant amount of people to be rooted in one place for a significant period of time to make a gospel difference in that place, to build community, to, to be a stable figure, a stable presence. And so I think oftentimes we make a lot of assumptions accusations and decisions about how we utilize a church building based off of our own perspective, our own opinion, our own cultural realities, our own mobility, our own sense of mobility and our own personal preferences. We, we think oftentimes about church buildings in relation to just how we're wired. And so I think God is asking us as a church to really consider what is the purpose of us, this people being gathered in this place in the center of St. Louis Park, 74 years after this church started and this building has been built and added on to, what is the strategic purpose that God has us here? So regardless of what, how we move forward, if we renovate this building or not, to me that genu genuinely does not matter. What matters to me is that we as a church have a robust understanding of the dynamic power of both people and place. What matters to me is that we as a people view this place as a strategic location that God will use us to impact the world, impact these neighborhoods, impact St. Louis Park, impact the Twin Cities, and impact the world with the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Regardless of what happens with our building, God has us here, and so how are we to engage this place and space? Let's look at Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 1 through 14, to get a sense of how God leads us. Scripture has a lot to say about the theology of place, a lot more than we often realize. So flip to Jeremiah chapter 29 with me, and let's start here. Jeremiah chapter 29, starting in verse 1. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exile. And to the priests, the prophets, and to all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after Kim Je Jeconiah and the queen mother, the eunuchs, and the officials of Judah and Jerusalem. The craftsmen and the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elisha, the son of Saphon, and, the Jeremiah, and Jeremiah, the son of Helikiah whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. It said, so, so here's the setting. God's people had been taken out of the promised land, out of Jerusalem, the holy city. They had been sent and scattered into Babylon, a pagan nation, as exiles. This was the Lord's discipline because they had worshipped false gods. God was scattering his people, sending them out of their homeland, out of the place that he had given them so that they would turn and repent and come back to him. And here's what God says. Here's what he tells them to do in that new place. 
He says, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you and do not listen to the dreams that they dream. For it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name and do not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place, Jerusalem. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for wholeness and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you, and you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to a place from which I have sent you into exile. See, God is engaging this idea of place with his people. He had given his people, Israel, this place, the the holy city, Jerusalem, this place for them to gather, this place for them to experience community, this place for them to worship him. And as they worshiped false idols, God knew that I need to scatter them out of this place to discipline them because ultimately I care about my people more than I care about the place. I've given them this place, and this place is a good, it's a good place. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. But at, in this season, they need to be scattered. And so he sends them into a new place, into Babylon, this pagan nation. And listen to how he tells them to engage this place. Verse 5, he says, Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters and multiply there. Do not decrease. Seek the welfare of the city. So God has called his people now and he's placed them in this new place, in this pagan nation, in these neighborhoods where they're surrounded by non-Christians, where they are surrounded by, by by a pagan nation rather than God, rather than God's community. And he says, put down roots in that place, build houses, plant gardens, immerse yourself in that place and seek the welfare of that city. For as that city flourishes, you will flourish. The call remains the same for us, church, that that we are living in St. Louis Park. God has placed us here or in a surrounding community, and he would call you to put down your roots, to build your homes, plant your gardens, and care for the welfare of your city. God has put this people here in this place, in St. Louis Park, and, and I believe he's telling us to, to seek the welfare of the city, get to know your neighbors, get to know your city organizations, and seek their welfare. For as it goes well with the city, so it will be well with you. Place was significant throughout the Old Testament. And God calls Abraham to leave his land and to journey, to go on a journey of following him. And he brings him to the land of Canaan. And then over time, his family grows and develops, and then, and then they end up in slavery in Egypt, a new place, 
a new place where God taught them a lot. They're stuck as slaves in the place of Egypt. And then God leads them out of that place and and he parts the Red Sea, a significant place where God's people would remember what he did. And as they wander through the wilderness, God had them build places of remembrance. And then he brought them to the promised land, a place where they could experience his goodness, his grace, a land flowing with milk and honey. And then when they turned their back on him, he, he sent them to a new place, Babylon, so that they could learn their lesson. But then even this passage tells us in verse 11, for I know the plans I have for you. Verse 10, at the end of verse 10, he says, I will visit you and I will fulfill my promise and bring you back to this place. I have a place that I want my people to reside and I will bring them back there after I've done some discipline. Verse 11, I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for wholeness and not for evil to give you a future and a hope. Seek me and find me. Seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all of your heart. God is a God of place. As they wandered throughout the wilderness, he had them build a tabernacle a place where his glory could come and dwell, where they could enter worship, where they could make sacrifice. In the holy city of Jerusalem, he had them build a permanent temple. So the tabernacle was this portable place of worship. And now in Jerusalem, they built the temple, this stable place of worship where God's people could congregate, where they could gather. And then when they came back from exile, they rebuilt that place. Then we move over to the New Testament, and we know now that God doesn't reside in the temple. He resides in his people. God's not contained to a place. He's alive and active in a people. But throughout the New Testament, we still see that place matters. That place is important. They had temple worship. They went to the temple, and then they went to synagogues to learn and to engage one another. And then when they were kicked out of synagogues in the early church, you can read about this in Acts chapter 19, Acts chapter 19, verses 9 and 10, they're, they're kicked out of the synagogues. Paul and his band of disciples, they're kicked out of the synagogues, and so they rent a place called the Hall of Tyrannus, a pagan hall where God's people would rent it. They gathered together so that they could learn the scriptures. They met in homes. They became a mobile community out of necessity because they were kicked out of their worship spaces. But place continues to make a difference in the New Testament. Let's look at Acts chapter 19, uh, Acts chapter 17, verses 22 through 28. This is Paul throughout the New Testament building the church, building a people, building a family, building a body, building a community, and he's doing it in places. Look at what he says here to to the Greeks in Athens. Acts 17, 22 through 28. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. See, it's a reminder. He doesn't live, he doesn't reside in this building. He resides, he lives in his body, the the church, the people. We have to keep that in mind always. As a church, we, we cannot be tied to a place, to a location, to a body. But remember that the Spirit is living and active in his people. 
That's the theology of Scripture. But also there's this, this reality that place is significant, that place matters. So he says, verse 24, pick it up there with me. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in hope that they might feel their, their way towards him and find him. Yet he is not actually far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. Even some of our own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. You see that theology there that Paul is bringing out, that we live where we live, we work where we work, we play where we play, we worship where we worship for a reason. It's not random. It's not chance. God has allotted, look at verse 26, he's determined and allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. You are here this morning. You are in the home that you're in. You are in the workplace that you're in with a purpose. You are there on purpose. God has a significant reason for you being in those places. That reason is that you would expand his kingdom by loving others in the name of Jesus. And so that applies to all of us personally, individually. Think about your own life. You're in your neighborhood. You are in your apartment complex. You are in your workplace for a reason. Do we live that way? Do, when we go to work on Monday, do we think, God, you've placed me in this workplace for a reason? Or do we go begrudging and complaining because we don't like the work? We, when you go home, when you go to your, your apartment, do you walk through the halls of your apartment and begrudge the place because it smells like smoke that the people who aren't supposed to smoke in there um, are ignoring the no smoking signs? I managed an apartment complex in St. Louis Park and had to knock on many doors as the apartment building manager, like, you're not supposed to, you're not supposed to smoke pot in this room. That was part of my job. And, and my, my inclination was to begrudge it. But this passage is saying God had me there for a reason, for a season, and with a purpose. He has all of us in our places on purpose. That's what this passage says. He has, he has designed all things and placed you in a place on purpose. And I believe that's true for this building, for this property. We are gathered here in this specific place for a reason. It's not random. Yes, it's a building, and we could move, we could find another building, we could change location, and God would still be God, and it's a people, not a particular place. But I do believe that there's a significance about this specific place, 6805 Minnetonka Boulevard, the geographic center of St. Louis Park. So what is the purpose of our place? How are we to contextualize our space in our time and place? It's 2019. That's our time. Our place is 6805 Minnetonka Boulevard, and our space is this facility. To contextualize means to take the gospel of Jesus Christ and to make it platable to the current culture and context. That's what Paul does here in this passage. In Acts 17, Paul's doing what we call in theological circles contextualizing the gospel. He's engaging with, with pagans from Athens who worship unknown gods, who worship pagan gods. And look at what he does in contextualizing. Verse 22 
He says, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. He's affirming their religious impulse. He's contextualizing the gospel of Jesus Christ. He says, I see that you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with the inscription to an unknown God. And so he's saying, I see that you're a religious people. You desire to worship. In fact, you're worshiping an unknown God. And he says, let me make this God to you known. It's not an unknown God. It's Yahweh, the God of gods, the Lord of lords, the God over all. And so he's contextualizing the gospel to the men of Athens in the first century. In the same way, we contextualize the gospel to our community, to our neighborhoods. That's why we do certain things certain ways. We, that, that's why we don't do certain things the way that we necessarily did them in the 1950s, because we need to contextualize to th- 2019. And so when we think about our building, too, how do we contextualize our building? How do we, how do we operate within our building in a way where it's sensible to the gospel in 2019? And to the people who live in and around St. Louis Park who have yet to experience the grace of God in this church gathering. Three things that if you pick up the packet and you, you will read, we, we believe, our church leadership believes that we contextualize our space, this church building, by creating a more functional space. This is why we want to do a building renovation. We want to create a more functional space in our building where people can have functional hospitality, where we can have community among our church building. It's really hard in our church building to have natural flow and community and interaction. New people, we invite you down to Alfred's Hall and you're like, I don't know where Alfred's Hall is. And once I finally find it, I get lost trying to get out of it. I've had that conversation over and over again with new people. Different demographics. In the last couple weeks, I, I saw a mom with three kids here by herself get lost in our building. And then I had coffee with a new couple in their 70s who is attending our church. And they said, we really wanted to go down to Alfred's Hall and meet some people, but we couldn't find it. And then finally, we got up the nerve to to walk around and find it, and we found it. And we had coffee down there, and it was a great time. The people of your church are amazing, but we got lost trying to get out, and some of the doors were locked, and we couldn't figure out how to find our car. That's just the reality of our building. It's not very functional for the way that we do church in 2007, 2019. It's not very functional for community. It doesn't foster community and hospitality. You're an incredible church family. Over and over again, we hear people saying, your church family is so friendly, so welcoming, so hospitable. That's why we come back. But they get lost and confused in our church building. We want to contextualize our building by improving it for our growing kids in youth ministries. If we continue at the same growth that we've had in our kids' ministries, we'll be out of kids' space in the next two to three years. And the way that we operate in our building currently isn't up to kind of the security and safety standards that we would like to have in place. And so we want to contextualize our building. We want to improve it and change it so that we can serve our families and the families who have yet to come, those who want to come and hear the gospel but may walk in and lose their kids. We want to contextualize and change our church building to minister to them. And we want to contextualize our space for our time and place for the future, too. Think about the infrastructure of this building needs to be improved. This building can't go on forever without being touched, without being improved. If you read the packet, this isn't an exciting number, but if you read the packet, it's about $850,000 worth of code updates that we'll need to make in our building, including the parking lot, sprinkling the building. That's just the reality of maintaining a worship space in a particular place. St. Louis Park has codes, 
that we have to comply with and we're grandfathered in, so if we touch nothing, praise the Lord, we don't have to do that. But if we ever want to do anything, we have to meet some of that code compliance. So that's just the reality. And we think as a church, if we're going to continue on in the future, if God has us located here at 6805 Minnetonka Boulevard for the next 15, 20, 30, 50 years, how do we steward our building for the future, for our families, and for the function of our church body. That's some of what we are thinking about, and we want to encourage you to be thinking and praying about. Now, people are the point of the church, but place and space are tools that can either help or hinder the work, right? I mean, that's just the reality of having a church building. The church is a family, not a facility. It's a body, not a building. It's a people, not a place. But if God has put us in this place, we need to consider how do we utilize this space as a tool to help our ministries, to advance our ministries, not to hinder it. How many of you have ever used a bad tool to try and get a job done? Put your hand up nice and high. I want to know. Isn't it terrible? I do, I do not take care of my tools. I hate doing projects. And so my tools often get, well... I'm trying. I'm trying to grow up and be a better steward of my own things. But I have, I have a, a um, lineman's tool that I use often, and I left it laying somewhere outside once, and it got rained on a bunch and got all rusty. I hate using that thing. It's not very effective because it's a tool that, when it's functioning well, when it's well cared for, when the, the what do you call that middle thing that it bends on? Is that a hinge? whatever it is, when that's oiled, when the tool is taken care of, that tool will get a job done. But because I've neglected the tool, that tool doesn't get a job done and it frustrates me. Building's the same way. A building is a tool for ministry. If we neglect our building or ignore it or don't continually improve certain aspects of it, it becomes a hindrance to the work rather than actually helping the work. And so we need to be thinking through that and considering that. Um, in the book, um, No Home Like Place, Len writes this, and I love what he says here. He says, place is space where things have happened which are now remembered and which provide continuity and identity across generations. Continuity and identity across generations. Steven Anderson just told us this morning that he was dedicated right here. How many years ago? 1956. How old does that make you, Stephen? <laughs> 1950. Look at the continuity there. That Stephen Anderson has a place to return home from India, and this is a place that he can remember. He probably doesn't remember being dedicated because he was an infant. But I guarantee you, you talk to him, he remembers running around this building and getting into trouble and doing all the things that you see all the kids currently doing. And this place has provided continuity and identity across generations. Place is space in which important words have been spoken, which have established identity. How many sermons have gone out from this particular place that have met people where they're at, wounded, weak, hurting, broken, questioning, and they've heard the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, and it's radically transformed their lives how many people have sat in those pews and had awkward interactions or conversations after sermons because it's hard to do it in the pew? That's part of why we want to blow out that back wall and make community space so that people can fellowship in a more natural way. But how many people in this same place have encountered the grace of God as they've encountered his people? 
place is space in which important words have been spoken, which have established identity, defined vocation, and envisioned destiny. Place is space in which vows have been made. How many of you have made vows right here? Put your hand up nice and high. Put it up real nice and high, and then everyone look around. Look at that. It's a significant amount of people. And add in the second service and those who are gone today, people have made their vows right here. Place is space in which vows have been made and demands have been issued. Place is a declaration that our humanness cannot be found in, in escape, detachment, absence of commitment, and undefined freedom. See, oftentimes we think as humans, we're just free. We're free to travel, free to do what we want, free to live our lives as tourists. But that's living your life without any accountability, any commitment, any roots. And so Len here is calling us to think through what does it mean to be rooted? What does it mean to be in a place? How does place impact our ministry? And now lastly, the purpose of our place is to create a space for, God, for people to experience God's grace by interacting with the chosen race. The purpose of this place, our church body, as I, as I think and pray and think through our church building the purpose of this church building in this location in St. Louis Park is to create a space for people to experience God's grace. As we gather on Sundays, as we meet throughout the weeks, as we utilize the building for different things, people are encountering, they are experiencing the living God by encountering us, by having a relationship and conversation with us, the chosen race. That word sounds a little bit weird, doesn't it? Some of you are like, what do you mean by the chosen race? Well, let's see. Let's look. Flip to 1 Peter chapter 2 with me, and we'll close out with this. 1 Peter chapter 2 tells us that we are the chosen race, and through us, the world experiences God's grace. 1 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 4, Peter writes, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves are like living stones being built upon a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor that is for, for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to. But you... But you are a chosen race. This is all those who would believe in Jesus Christ, the cornerstone. You are a chosen race. This doesn't have to do with skin color. It doesn't have to do with cultural preference. This doesn't have to do with language. This doesn't have to do with continent. This has to do with placing your faith in Jesus Christ, the cornerstone, the one who makes this new humanity the one who restores the humanity that was lost to us in the garden when Adam and Eve took measures into their own hands and they ate of the forbidden fruit. And humanity since then has been disintegrating and has been defiled and has been distorted. 
The message of the scripture is that Jesus is now restoring us. He's making us a new race, a new human race of all people, all tribes, all tongues, all languages, all nations, all skin colors coming together as God's chosen people. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. See, God has called us into a family, and he has placed this family into this facility. And the way that we do church, the way that we operate on Sundays and throughout the week in this facility matter because we are God's chosen people and his heart is for the people who aren't yet here and we want to engage them in a powerful, meaningful way for his glory, for the good of our city and for the advancement of the gospel. Amen? I'm gonna pray and then we're gonna respond with worship. The kids have joined us and we want the kids to experience the body of Christ in action, coming to the body and the blood of Christ. The communion elements are a reminder of who Jesus is and what he's done. The, the cracker represents his body broken for us. The cup represents his blood shed for us for the forgiveness of our sins. If you've placed your faith in him, if you are a part of this chosen race, this new creation, the elements are here for you. And so anytime you feel led, come forward. There's two stations here in the front, one in the back. And be reminded of who Jesus is and what he's done. And we want to think critically and strategically about our building. But ultimately, it's about the body. So when we gather, church family, it's about the body. The body of Jesus and his body, this new body, this new race that he's building. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for who you are, for what you've done. You are the perfect man who lived without sin, and you died a sinner's death in our place on our behalf, and you overcame sin and death in the grave, giving us new life, putting us into a new family, adopting us as sons and daughters, making us brothers and sisters, and sending us into the world as neighbors and witnesses. I pray that you would remind us over and over again of that identity and that we would live out of that for your glory, for the good of those we interact with in the advancement of your gospel, we pray. Amen.